You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 8th, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. We are all still surviving. Still surviving. We are survivors. Three, was it three weeks in the pandemic, and I haven't showered in six weeks. Wait, have you only been in in sheltering at home for three weeks? No, more than that. For me, March March 3rd, I started. Oh, wow. I started, it looks like, on March 14th. That's around the time when I remember it all started getting shut down and people started practicing all the things they're doing now. But we're just, in the East Coast, we're just peaking now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're saying mm-hmm. the next it's two funny. weeks. Next two weeks, really, like really physical yeah. distancing. If you've only been sort of doing it, like like if you if you don't have to go even to the grocery store, don't go. Yep, it's it's funny. Have you guys experienced this? Where you think about your mental state just weeks ago or a month ago, thinking over what you were thinking back then. And I remember like. Uh, I was mm-hmm. going to a wedding. I'm like, well, crap, I guess I, I can't fly. I'm not going to fly there. That would be silly. Maybe I'll drive 12 hours and go there and hang out with 100 people. <laughs> oh, my God. How, how did I even entertain that thought at that time? You know, it's just like it's just so weird, the evolution, and so fast. Yeah, you know, like what was it when you think back like somebody told me that five weeks ago that Buttigieg dropped oh, out of the race? Yeah. Wow. Doesn't that seem like three months ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> At least. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Wow. Like well, wow. I have to report to you guys that I'm, it's very difficult. I have both of my kids at home, no school, no daycare. Cabin fever. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, we, you know, I'm trying to kids get them out crazy. as much as possible, like out in the yard. We're doing tons of yard work, you know, which is good because it's like a two-hour block of time because we have the, you know, the sun isn't setting until so late that we could get the kids outside. Nothing is working. There is just nothing like having the kids have to go to school, you know? And do they understand it? Like, do they get it at all? <laughs> My seven-year-old really has a, a good, firm grasp of what's going on. My four-year-old is just kind of internalizing it like it's scary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a big yeah. unknown. She doesn't She doesn't understand. Dylan gets what sickness is. He's my seven-year-old. He gets he gets it, so he he understands there's a really bad illness going around, and we have to isolate ourselves. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they miss their family a lot. They miss, you know, they want to see their, their grandmothers, their you know, their grandfather. You know, my my wife's husband, who's I'm sorry, your wife's husband. Who's I'm, that, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And they want to see their uncle. Hello. Yeah, they do. I mean, Olivia Olivia talks about the two of you guys a lot. But I mean, overall, though, it's the stress is kind of mounting. And I'm curious to know, you know, if a lot of people are experiencing this, I'm I'm horrified when I read that people are alone, like completely alone. That scares me as well. Yeah. But, you know, I think it might. I mean, I guess it depends on the person and what their mental state is and the kinds of responsibilities they have. And, and, And everybody's situation is different. In my mind, I'd rather be alone than with kids. But maybe yeah. some people feel different than that. You know? I'll tell you that at the group home where I'm closing out my practicum, the girls are AWOLing constantly. Mm-hmm. It's like oh they get gosh, it, yeah. but they don't get it. And yeah, right. Because they just 
I, I don't know if it's an oppositional thing or if it's like deeper than that or if it's trauma related. I mean, it's a lot of these things, but they keep leaving. And I can tell you that one specific situation without obviously giving any detail, a girl, it was like the final straw. She AWOLed for the last time. She knew she wasn't supposed to. And they were like, you can't come back in after you've already been on notice. It's, it's, we're got to close your bed. Like it's too dangerous. It's too risky. And, sure. and she did. She left again. And when she came back, it was like, okay, well, now what do we do? And they called the social worker. Social worker said, mm-hmm. not my responsibility. They called the county of origin. County of origin said, we won't take her unless you quarantine her for 14 days. Yeah. Jeez. And we yeah, were like, how self. do we quarantine somebody? who refuses to stay in the house. And it was amazing to see how many people throughout the system passed the buck and were like, not our problem. We don't want to deal with it. Wow. It was really Mm. unfortunate. Like, And it makes me think of how many systems across the board are failing right now because they never built this in as a contingency. And, you know, there are probably foster kids in institutions or in, you know, foster families around, around the globe that are, you know, not just foster kids, but like a lot of institution people who are in institutional care um, are falling through the cracks left and right right now. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jay, don't forget, I mean, I kind of know, uh, I know someone who has a family. They're at home now, husband, wife, two young kids. The husband got it, the two kids, mm-hmm. and now the mom. Yeah. All yep. four of them have it yep. in the same house. That it just scares the hell out of me. Yeah, yeah if one person gets it in the house, the household got it pretty much. The household's much. got it, yeah. yeah. How are yeah. they doing, though? Are they okay? Yeah, so far they're fine. That's I good. Mean, the, yeah, but you know. Yeah, it could be a lot worse. I know, I know. It's just, you know, look, it's it's a stressful situation. The external factor is stressful. We know what's going on in the world. We know, you know, the governments are having a ton of problems with it and there's a lot of death happening all around the world that's unexpected. But then on top of that, we're having our internal problems. Everybody's got something different that is is stressing them out. Whether you're alone, whether you're in a loud house, you know, some people are struggling with money. Some people are freaking out about income. You know, a lot of people are, a lot of people are going stir crazy. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of attitudes change. You know, you scan through social media and you see people like the, the first week, you know, not to, I'm not trying to make light of this in any way, but you know, there was a kind of fun aspect to it. We're locked at home. We don't have to go to work. Yeah. You're spending a lot you of know, time with your family. It's a change of yeah. pace. Yeah. It, it and now, wasn't that stressful, but it, <laughs> yeah, now it's, get it, it's the marathon. Now it's like, yeah. Like when you first one, like, I could do this. This is fine. Then, then you start to mm-hmm. really hit the wall. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is really getting tired. Well, yeah, yeah. The psychological stuff is really setting in. And it's like you said, Jay, it's different for different people. Like for me, I can tell you that I am having circadian rhythm problems out oh, the wow. wazoo. Like it is just. I have no benchmarks right now. I have to build in all of these artificial reasons to like get up and then to go to bed at a decent hour and to like eat at the right times and stuff because I have no external structure at Mm -hmm. all in my life and yeah it doesn't seem like it it does seem like a lot of people are struggling with that too the days are blending together what's day what's night when you know it's oh it's it's messing with my head and I think everybody has that that kind of different psychological pressure and congratulations care for using circadian and wazoo in the same sentence (laughs) I've never, I've never heard that before. Thank you. And from my point of view, hmm. I mean, I, I, I try to make myself feel better by thinking that, you know, I've been home for a while. Uh, I know I don't have it because I just, you know, it's been weeks 
and I've been – you know what to do. I know what to do to be extremely safe. I know exactly what to do. I don't have to look outside looking for zombies all day. Mm-hmm. I don't have to build barricades. Mm. You know, I did build uh, – you know, I did program one of my robots built one <laughs> to be gu- to be a guard sentry and, you know, he says stuff. Dalek but- unit reinitializing. <laughs> is, that, is that the one Seek. with the wash? Locate. Exterminate. Oh, no. So that makes me feel safe. So, you know. That was that was epic, Bob. Oh, so I do uh, I do want to point out that you know we're talking about very minor issues that we're having with this compared to yes. uh, we can't really complain because there are people who like lost their My job point, exactly and have like or, you know they can't work from home they're having serious issues or they're 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 you know they have serious health problems that they have to deal with amidst all of this. You know, our, we're we're complaining about very minor right, and they've things. got dead like. Family members, you know. And yeah. the thing is, so, I agree so with we're that. We're doing but, great, but I also I do think it's important not to minimize psychological stressors. So no, like, I agree. You know, agree. there are people. You're right. Like, yes, people are are losing family members, but there are also people whose depression or anxiety or OCD is like through the roof right now. Yeah. And yeah, even though sure. they might not have, and you know, oh, just because my aunt didn't die doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, in a critical place. So I do think that it's important to always. Yes, we should compare ourselves to other people for perspective, but no, we shouldn't always compare ourselves to other people so that we beat ourselves up about how, you know, why do I feel like crap if people are dying out No, there? you're right, Kara. Like, like p- patients will say to me all the time, it's like, oh, I'm sure you have patients way sicker than me. It's like, that yeah. doesn't matter. You are you. Your problem yeah. is your problem. Every problem is important. I do just want to, I don't want people out there to think that like we have, we don't have the perspective that. Yeah, that we're on like the, just whining. On the range of things, we're at the minor end of the, of the mm. spectrum. It's still an issue we got to deal with, but let, I do, I did want to make sure we were, we, we are putting it in perspective. Don't worry about it. And globally, this is going to be one of those things that like we're going to have all this weird hindsight about. Do you yeah. guys think about that? Well, like we're living yeah. through the news in like a major way right now. There are kids who are going to be like, coronavirus like it marked their childhoods and things mm-hmm. like dylan you oh, were yeah. just saying dylan's I've old enough to kind that. of get it so mm-hmm. as he grows up he's gonna be like oh that time when we were stuck at home because the virus was out there yeah yeah, yeah amazing without. anyway yeah it's 9 11 oh it's, it's no for way. the hit oh be, well beyond, beyond i think this beyond is, this is in this is huge this is an entire chapter in the yeah. history books this it's 9 11 ish for the people who lived in new york city but I think, yeah, it's it's really mm-hmm. beyond for like because it's just it, it's affecting literally every person on the planet. It's incredible. Let's run the numbers very very quickly. So yeah. the worldwide we're up to one point five million cases, eighty eight thousand deaths. Uh, we did have we've been talking about like how do we estimate the actual death rate mortality rate and and the fact that we won't really know until we have some hindsight. So I actually we got the first study using a method that is, you know, a hindsight method where you just look at excess deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, there was a study looking at excess deaths in New York City, and they found that uh, there are an additional 200 deaths per day at home. Just these are just people dying at home above the baseline. Baseline is usually 20 to 25 people per day die at home. And now it's 200 200 plus, you know, so there's an extra mm, okay. 200 people dying at home per day. So that's probably that's... mostly coronavirus, you know, COVID-19, although it's probably also people who are dying from other reasons, but their death was precipitated by the fact that they can't get access to healthcare, or they can't get out of the home or they're not, whatever, their routine that they need to stay alive has been disrupted. Uh, and so there might be some indirect 
pandemic deaths there as well. That we won't know for a while. But what that means is if these numbers, you know, are representative in any way, we could be underestimating COVID-19 mortality indirect and direct by 40%. Mm. So that's another piece, piece of data in all of this, which we knew was coming, right? We knew that the excess deaths, like unaccounted for deaths, was going to be another piece to this puzzle and was going to make it seem like, you know, if anything, add to the mortality rate. But still, you know, <laughs> estimates are anywhere from a half a percent to 20%. It's probably somewhere in the single digits, but significant. And, and we'll, we won't really know until we have more hindsight on it, as you say. And a second wave, maybe. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. So China, so we always like, we can look at other countries, mm-hmm. you know, so like we're like you know, two months behind China. They're now loosening their physical distancing and they're mm-hmm. worried about a second yeah. wave hitting, you know, and some of the, there's some early signs that, that, that it might be coming back, but we'll see, you know, that's going to be a v- really important test bed. The other little yeah. update, little update, some experts reviewed the data uh, worldwide and said there may not be any reprieve over the summer due to the warm weather. The warm weather mm. may not decrease the spread of this virus. Yeah, I was wondering that because it seems to be affecting every continent and they're in some, you know, the summer yeah. and winter are flipped and it seems to not, it seems to be somewhat doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move on. Kara, you could, you haven't done a what's the word in a while and you're going to do know. one that is sort of related to the pandemic. It is. It was actually recommended by a listener um, and I thought that it, you know, it just seemed like it was important right now. So you may have come across the word fomite when you've been reading about, I mean, when you've been reading anything and everything on the internet, because you can only find coronavirus information (laughs) on the internet, you may have seen this word fomite. um, And maybe you were like, that's a word I've never seen before. Maybe not. Maybe you're an infectious disease expert and you know all about it. But have you guys come across this word before? Not counting Steve because he's a doctor. Yeah, of course I have. Yeah. And of course, no, I have. I've, I've come across foment. You've come across yeah, foment, but not foment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, fomite is a really interesting word etymologically, um, but it's also a really relevant word to um, to what the world is dealing with right now. So, it's um, it's spelled F O M I T E, and it's a noun that refers to objects that could become contaminated with infectious particles, organisms, whatever, and aid in trans in transmitting them to other people. So it's sort of like an object that's the go-between to spread infection. So things like doorknobs, toilet seats potentially, in the hospital. We actually talked about this, I feel like, maybe a year ago, Steve. Didn't mm-hmm. we talk about some sort of study about the sleeves of lab mm-hmm. coats and ties? And ties, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that they can be fomites, that they can spread infection within a hospital. You'll also see sometimes that equipment in hospitals can serve as fomites if they're not, um, you know, cleaned uh, effectively. Um, but even within our homes, I think we're reading about fomites all the time because we're re- reading a lot about like, should I decontaminate my groceries? How do I make sure my house is clean? How do I prevent the spread of infection? But okay, fomites from an etymological perspective, this is really cool. So I came across an article in the Journal of Hospital Infection, and it's pretty funny. It, this guy is like railing about how we shouldn't be using the word fomite at all because it's a completely incorrect word etymologically. It actually should be fomies, F-O-M-E-S. And that's because the word fomite itself is a, there's a special, it's a back formation of fomies. This is a Latin word that actually 
came into existence pretty early. So there's different kind of iterations. Um, it didn't become a medical term until the, the middle of the 1800s. But even in the 1600s, we started to use foamies used. And foamies was actually, came from the same roots as like fuel. And so the idea here was the word actually translated to kindling or wood or tinder, um, probably from an earlier form that meant to keep warm, like uh, like fovir, which would be like the root of fever. But that's, and so the idea was that it was originally used to talk about things that spread like fire. Oh, cool. Super interesting, huh. right? But then in backforming it, backforming is when um, you remove like prefixes or suffixes to turn a word that had them into a, a different form of the word. But in doing so, you actually screw up the kind of like etymology of the word. So this was, um, yeah, like it shouldn't have become fomite. It should have apparently become foamies, but it, we call it fomites and that's just how it's stuck in English. Um, and <laughs> yeah. and happy, happy little accident. Happy little accident in it. like the 1800s. Um, I think in the scientific usage, it was first used... You're saying in the vernacular of the layman. Of the layman, yeah, you know, his vernacular. But yeah, th- that's, that's a fomite. And clean your fomites, people. Now's the time to clean your fomites. <laughs> Good, right. Good advice. Sterilize them fomites in your life. Sterilize. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different robot. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. All right. Well, let's get to the news items. Uh, again, we're going to start with a couple of COVID-19 related news items. It seems like like the news is all COVID-19 all the time now. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. Sometimes it's, really, it. it's hard to find like, you know, any news being reported that isn't related to it. But in any case, we did get a lot of requests for this particular news item. There's a, a lot of uh, speculation going around that 5G networks are somehow responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, or at least (laughs) making it worse. I see. How? How, exactly. Yeah, that begs the question, isn't it? This uh, seems to be stemming from one paper that is, is basing it on mainly on the fact that Wuhan, China, was the place where China rolled out their 5G network first, and that's where... The pandemic started. That's the crux of that's, their argument? That's pretty so? much at the heart of it is that sort of massive coincidence about – it's not like there's this – you can overlay a pattern of 5G and the pandemic. It's just like just Wuhan was was where mm-hmm. it started. But, yeah, even calling that a coincidence is thin. <laughs> so, right. It's just <laughs> – you know, it's, it's like it's, it's two bar- things happened in Wuhan. It's barely a coincidence at that, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, but also – you know, the, he, there's the other basis is studies showing that it's possible to affect the uh, activity, you know, viral activity in an electromagnetic field, right? Uh, but this data is so speculative. Like you, are, it is a huge leap from the kind of petri dish stuff that this guy's pointing to to the conclusion that. There's a real world effect in people with COVID nineteen and five G. This mm-hmm. is this gets filed under wild speculation. You know, <laughs> it's like barely even a hypothesis. It's just wild speculation. That's it. So there's really not there's no science to it. There's nothing to it at all. It's not really plausible. It's just one guy's wild speculation. I did want to put this into the context of a lot of the generic five G fear mongering that's going on. Again, you know, things like pandemics tend to stoke a lot of fear and pseudoscience. 
because mm-hmm. you know, and snake right. oil, Irra- irrational behavior. Yeah, so we've, yep. we've yeah we've spoken to about a lot of the snake oil being offered, uh, either just you know legitimate or premature treatments to pure magical stuff. You know, there's no tested, proven, plausible you know treatment for it at this point, other than supportive care. So don't believe anything out there. Uh, but getting back to five G. So as 5G networks are being rolled out, you know, in much of the world, uh, this is stoking a lot of fears, just like 4G did and 3G, you know. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and none of those panned out. But this is, you know, let's focus on the science a little bit. So in terms of plausibility, Please. I think the big argument that people who are saying that we should be concerned about this is that, well, 5G is a higher frequency electromagnetic wave than 4G or 3G. It's therefore carries more energy and that has a greater potential to cause biological harm. So let's put that into perspective a little bit. Uh, 5G is operating in the 28 to 39 gigahertz range, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you go higher still, you get to microwaves. And then if you go higher still, you get to infrared and then visible light. Visible light is between 430 and 770 terahertz. Wow, way beyond gigahertz. So that's 12,000 times. times. Yeah, light, visible light is about 12,000 times higher frequency than 5G. When I wrote about this, I pointed out the fact that the computer screen you're using to read this article is Mm. giving you higher, is bathing you in higher frequency EM radiation than a 5G network. Oh. But frequency is only one issue, right? It's also power because if you were within a powerful enough, you know, focused radio frequency, you know, EM field that that could cause biological harm mainly through heating, right? Not through so it's non-ionizing radiation which means it doesn't break molecular bonds, but it, it can still cause heating, right? That's why we use microwave ovens to heat our food. And so the issue is, well, if you're heating the tissue a little bit, can that can that cause any biological harm? And there are studies which show that like holding a cell phone to your head does warm the surrounding tissue a little bit. But it's it really is negligible. I mean that this at this power and frequency range, you know, it's it's only at most hundreds of watts, you know, tens to maybe hundreds, depending on if you're near a tower or something. Uh, so very, very low power very, very uh, low frequency, you know, comparatively, like the 5G networks are operating under, again, at most hundreds of watts. Wait, and that's not ever been anybody's real argument, right? Like, ooh, 5G is making things slightly warmer. Ooh. No, it is. That really, really? That's that the really argument? is the biological. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I thought that it was some sort of magic, like, but the waves are magically dangerous. But we know that they're not because they're not. I know. Uh, they're non-ionizing. No, really, but does come down to the tissue, tissue heating. That's really it. And so, <sighs> a lot of you know the scientists who are who are sounding the warning bell, which I you know I don't think there really is a consensus out there that there's any safety concern. There has been like a famous letter from a certain number of scientists, but they have a history of being, I think, being ideological and political and not being really in the mainstream scientifically. So I think that that's like a biased group. So in terms of like researchers and scientists who know what they're talking about, the the frequency and power is well below safety limits. Uh, there's really no plausible reason to think that this is going to cause any 
any harm. Again, your computer monitor is bathing you in more powerful and higher frequency radiation than than the 5G networks, networks that are being rolled out. So what about clinical studies? Like if we look out there in the world, are people being harmed by this? And we've spoken about like the cell phone data multiple times. And the answer is, well, we don't have it. We don't have data with 5G because, you know, the 5G is just getting rolled out. But if you look at the 3G and 4G data, the, after many, many studies, there really isn't any consistent signal out there. There doesn't appear to be any correlation with increased risk of brain tumors or cancers or any, any specific disease. Correlation, smorelation. Yeah. So, you know, if now, of course, that doesn't prove zero risk because you can't do that. But the data is such that we could say, well, if there is any remaining risk that we're missing, it's too small to worry about. You know, just yeah. in the background, there are way, way, way many more things in your life that are causing, that are much more plausibly having biological effects <laughs> and they're probably having more of an effect on you than the 5G. So it's really, in in my opinion, a non-issue. We, of course, should follow the data. We should, you know, do epidemiological, you know, ecological studies just just to to be reassuring, but I don't think there is any. I don't think this is something people need to worry about. Is the bottom line, um, and there and there is no plausible connection to the pandemic, and you know people should stop spreading that around the internet because it's that's you know that's total nonsense in my opinion. Yeah, I mean for me the, when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, of course people are saying that, and then it really started to to get around. Ugh, mm-hmm. Can I? Sorry to take like two extra seconds. Can I read you a neighborhood petition that my friend got on Nextdoor, which is an mm-hmm. app um, that people like in the same neighborhood have access to that I just saw on her Instagram. It says, it's becoming widely known that 4G and 5G technologies cause many harms to human health. Cancer is only one problem and one that is easily solved. 4G and 5G cause 720 factorial different maladies in human beings and can kill everything that lives but some forms of microorganisms. Some pathogens and certain parasites are made more virulent by selected frequencies of RF. Insects and birds are already being killed by RF broadcasts. Broadcast can be controlled to give selected individuals maladies. All this needs to be stopped. And then she said that 3,000 people have already signed the petition. Well. And, and this is like in a relatively affluent neighborhood outside of Los Angeles. Yeah, but come on, Kara. That doesn't really say yeah, much. I know. That's true. It's just, Let's face it. That's like the woo population right yeah, there. Yeah, these are the people. <laughs> you're right. And of course, they cited, I'm assuming this is that study, the... 4G, 5G are harmful to human health, are very harmful to human health and environment, a preliminary review by Cristiano V et al. in BAOJ Cancer. The the confusion that they're making is they're confusing hazard and risk, right? Uh-huh. They're right. looking yeah. at they're looking at preclinical data which shows the potential for hazard, meaning mm-hmm. stuff is happening. So I like I like you know, that's been likened to a, a shark in a tank. Yes. Theoretically, that shark could kill you. But the risk is really low if you're not swimming in the tank with the shark. Right. You know, a loaded gun is a hazard. But if you have it locked away in a safe, it's not very much of a risk. And so, yes, when you have in in a very small space cells in a Petri dish and saying, well, stuff is happening when we expose them 24 hours a day to intense (laughs) 5G fields, you know, then there's a potential – it's a, you know, potential biological effect there. That's a potential hazard. It's not even a hazard. It's a potential hazard. But what's the risk of people out there in the real world, 
you know, mm-hmm. well, then that's where the plausibility drops off extremely low. And so far, with 30 years of people using cell phone technology, there hasn't been really any any consistent blip in any of these things. Yeah. So that I think the risk is extremely low. But if, you're, if your research is preclinical and involves toxicology and hazard, et cetera, that's your world, you know? Mm-hmm. And some people just can't get out of their own world scientifically. And they think that that's, that's the be-all and end-all. Uh, and they can't put it into perspective. Uh, and so that's where I, I see a lot of the papers and and you know petitions or whatever touting the potential harm of one thing or another. A lot of it is coming from these toxicology you know type yes. researchers who who aren't putting it into clinical context. Yeah, it's like they're forgetting that we have things like skin, yeah, and right. skulls. And white blood cells and mm-hmm. all the things that your body has developed over millions of years of evolution to prevent yeah. every toxin in the environment from invading your cells. And we're living in a magnetic field and we're living, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the sun. You know, we're being bathed by yeah. EM radiation all over the place. Um, we're a little bit more resilient than that. It's just that's our, you know, biology is, again, a dynamic homeostatic system that can deal with toxins and energy and things like yep. that. So, yeah, just we, the on the whole organism level, the plausibility really plummets. I'm being bombarded yeah. with cosmic waves right It's a lot of nuance and parsing for the public to do. They hear, oh, these scientists who say shit's happening in the lab is, <laughs> are worried, you know. Yeah. But yeah, but other scientists who who actually are, you know, medically trained aren't, you know, so concerned. <laughs> uh the data just is not is not holding up. Okay, let's move on. The, this is a funny little thing, but we've spoken about it so many times. And there are I think there are some interesting, you know, intellectual lessons here. There's, there's been a lot of discussion about the true cause of the Toilet paper shortage that we're having. <laughs> yes, the true cause, Steve, because there is a hidden truth out there that people don't know. And it, what's cool about it is it's a window into human psychology, and it shows us some of the best and worst traits that humanity shares. And just so you all know, I will be referring to this as the toilet paper hubbub. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So here is what's actually going on in the reality with toilet paper. Right, so we know that the fact that toilet paper is regarded so highly, it shows that humans, or at least some of us, you know, we we put it on a similar similar level as food. It's on the list. It's one of the things we grab when when something's going down. And it's not just local, right? It's not just happening. When I say local, I mean you know United States. This is happening all around the world. You know, I mean, it, not not only am I reading that, but I'm having people email me laughing about us talking about toilet paper, saying I'm from here, I'm from there, and it's you know it's happening all all over. So. The demand for toilet paper, brace yourselves, is still up. Yep. We still have a huge demand. In America, consumers have spent $1.4 billion on toilet paper in the last month. And this is a roughly 100% increase compared to the same time frame last year. Yeah, it's double. So yeah. when the end of March came, supplies were so limited that toilet paper sales then completely went into the toilet. Ha ha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so meaning that supplies <laughs> supplies got so purchased <laughs> that we had this huge spike of toilet paper purchases and this massive abnormal drop in toilet paper because there was no toilet paper to buy. Yeah. So let's get down to let's get down to the science here. What's going on? Why is toilet paper so difficult to find? So there's a few few theories we can throw around. One is a percentage of people that are buying toilet paper is extraordinarily high. And the, you know the amount Hi. that they're buying as well, and 
The second idea is because most of us are staying at home, we're actually using more toilet paper at home, right? We need more toilet paper because our butts happen to be in our houses 24 hours a day instead of, you know, you know, 16 hours a day, whatever it is. So it seems to make the most sense that both of these ideas here are in play. So an important detail to consider here is that toilet paper is a typical item that we that people go to whenever there's any kind of crisis, right? Like I said before, it could be weather related. There could be a power outage. Toilet paper is always at the top of the of the emergency list for some reason. I don't know why people aren't buying things like duct tape because that's so unbelievably useful. But toilet paper happens to be on that list. Now, what's unique about the pandemic is that it's not just happening in one region. You know, so it's happening to everybody everywhere, and this makes it impossible for suppliers and distributors to keep up with this persistent and literally worldwide demand. Now, it's also a problem that the pandemic has no end in, in view right now. We don't really know what's going to happen. So we're already a month into the pandemic here in the United States. It's been going on in other places longer than that. But we, you know, people are still acting regardless of where they are, like things are kind of still in an emergency. Now, especially when something is not available at the store or there's a, a little a, a, a less of a glut of it, people will notice it as you walk by. Oh, look, there's not many of these things anymore. And people start buying them because they feel like if other people think they need it, I need it too, right? Another factor to consider, Kara, you in particular, yes, is that since so many of us are staying home, we're buying toilet paper intended for the home, right? So when we go to the supermarket, we buy toilet paper that is targeted towards people like us, regular people. Most of us are not buying toilet paper that you'll find at your office building or your school or wherever you go during the day. You mean um, horrible one-ply scratchy butt toilet paper? Yes. In fact, I, that, I, I'm glad you brought that up. The quality of home toilet paper is a lot better than that it must be rejected sandpaper that they try to sell us. I mean, it's, so, it's terrible, that stuff. So anyway, the fact is that different companies sell the different kinds of toilet paper. Yeah, they're totally different supply streams. Yeah, it's two different supply streams, of course, right? So businesses are buying this stuff in bulk. They're buying different kinds, different grades. You're, you know, they're, 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 the whole way of doing business when you are a business is different than a consumer. You know, I'm not saying small offices, usually bigger buildings and stuff. They'll buy all this stuff in bulk. So the supply chain is simply not prepared to make this sudden shift. It, and it's actually a very difficult thing that companies and manufacture companies that manufacture toilet paper for the home have increased their hours in response to the pandemic and the companies that make toilet paper for everywhere else that you go have been making deals with food distributors so their products can be sold in grocery stores coming directly to a consumer right now this isn't easy because like i said these giant wheels of toilet paper that you'll find in the office building are not intended to be sold in supermarkets and they're not individually wrapped they don't come with barcodes. You know, all of those things that we never think about. You can't just start selling those giant wheels of toilet paper to consumers because they literally can't buy them. We, the, the barcodes, individual barcodes have to be created. They have to get into that stream. So, you know, they're, they're going to be putting stickers on these giant rolls of toilet paper so you could buy them in the supermarket. The fact is we actually don't have a toilet paper shortage. What we have is an infrastructure retooling issue. That's the real problem here. The experts are saying that the phantom shortage is not going to go away soon, and it'll probably be another month before the industry catches up with this sudden change in demand. 
You ever get stuck on the toilet, guys, with <laughs> no we toilet paper, and then you're screaming for help? Help! I, I, you know, like you, you're stuck. What do you do? You don't want to stand up for what obvious you do reasons. Is you make sure you have toilet paper before you start. <laughs> yes. I never do that. <laughs> right? Idea. I never do that. It's too much thinking. Like get in your yeah, car and drive on an empty tank of gas. You're not going to get very far. You're going to get stuck. <laughs> but people used to wipe themselves with newspapers. They used to wipe themselves with book paper. Ah. They, uh, they, you know, they would go and take a shower. You know, they'd go bathe after they used well, the, to- right. the toilet. Yeah, um, like a bidet, like what a lot of people yeah. in the entire yeah. world still use. <laughs> exactly. I know America like refuses to ca- let the bidet catch on. You know, maybe I think there's like a new bidet uptick because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There is. Well, I, I, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I would expect yeah. it, but it, you know, it's. I've looked into it a little bit. It's, they're very expensive generally. The good they ones. They don't have to be. They're they don't have to be. Absolutely seat. don't have to. But you can but replace your are, seat. They are. Yes. You can, you can go low tech. And from what I hear, they, the higher end ones are wonderful. Um, but the real professional, the real solid, you know, dedicated bidets are, you know, they are not cheap in this country. From what I from what I yeah, read. I had Japanese toilets in my last house, and they were. I mean, they weren't cheap, cheap, but that's because we wanted the whole toilet. Give me a number. Twenty two hundred dollars. Uh, Fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred. Yeah. yeah. To, to me, it's one for expensive food. apparatus. For sure. But we were building a house, right? But you can get just the seat for like a few hundred. Right. And so right. you take your seat off. You, but the problem is you have to have a plug by your toilet. Right. Which a lot of people don't have. So you'd have to get yep. an electrician to install one. Yep. It's still a cool upgrade because then you never have to use toilet paper. And the yeah. seat is heated. If what? you get the high-end yeah. one, sure. <laughs> Look, there is no... Real shortage. There's a supply chain issue. Yes, you should be frustrated if you're the person in your household that is the one that has to go to the store and when you see the aisle completely empty. Yes, you should look at that and shake your head because it's ridiculous because way too many people have way too much toilet paper in their house. Yeah, but, they figure they're going to use it eventually. It's non-perishable. Yeah. So. Well, and the it's, truth it's is, they there. are. Like, but because of them, now I'm running low. <laughs> yeah, that's the <laughs> what point. What do I yeah, do? The hoarder mentality I, gets. I got a delivery. Yeah, I mean, I had, I looked for it for a few weeks, couldn't find it. We never was in jeopardy, though. We always had, we had plenty <laughs> left. We had plenty left. I wasn't worried. And then by the time I, I saw it in the store, just very recently, last last time I went, and it was all they had so much of it. And you can only take two big mega rolls, but it was fine. It, it, there was never a real shortage for for me in in my household. But it was funny. Yesterday, I got a delivery of toilet paper uh, from uh, I think it was from Amazon that I forget making Jeez. the purchase, but I, I purchased it a while ago, and it's got it's got like uh, it's got like Chinese lettering on it, and they're small. They're like I put a I put a a, re- a real roll next to it, and they are tiny. They're miniature. Like like wait, who buys who makes toilet paper rolls that small? Yeah, what are you supposed to do with it? One hundred sheets. It was just weird. <laughs> but uh I'll use them just for the fun of it, just to see what they're like. But, but the, 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 <laughs> the take home for me on this was like it, again, this gets back to what we call the fundamental attribution error, right? We tend to assume that people do things for internal reasons. Right. So we we, right. we were happy with the explanation that this was just panic buying of toilet paper when in fact if you look think about it this way buying residential toilet paper has doubled Mm -hmm. but pretty much your use of residential toilet paper has doubled right when you think about it instead of going you know Ah. splitting splitting your bathroom use between home and work or school it's all at home now 
that's about right, at least from my personal experience. You know, I'm using about twice as much toilet paper at home because because You're I'm home not I'm, I'm all, home, home all the time. I'm not going at work. You know, which Number I used of to hours. Do. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, but you spend about half your waking day at work, half at home, and now it's a hundred percent at home. So the numbers fit mainly with that that factor. Not I think the panic right. the panic buying is really just almost like an epiphenomenon. It's not really what's driving this. Uh, you know what I mean? I think there's still some controversy about how much of it is hoarding versus the the issue of the, sh- the shifting from commercial to residential. But the numbers really suggest to me that it's probably mostly the shift to residential toilet paper use, which is interesting, you know? Or at least yep. maybe that's where the numbers are now. But there was, right, like a couple of weeks. No, there definitely was. There definitely was. Like once once buying. Once the shortage starts... Yeah, but but a lot of people are not panic buying though, right? You know, they're just they're just getting their one they have package no of toilet paper even now. When, even when they can, they're they're you know like sort of self rationing. You know what I mean? Well, but like like well, Bob said, most most stores are rationing anyway. Yeah, be- they're letting you because buy they one have to. Package. But I do think yeah. that when when we were faced early on with this idea that guys, you're probably not going to be able to leave your house for a while. People were like, gotta stock up. Right. Like in a think, really yeah. extreme right. kind think of way. Think about it this way. How many people have gone to the store and said one of two things? Oh, wow. I'm home a lot. I'm crapping more. I'm going to buy. I'm running low. I'll buy more <laughs> toilet paper. Or the other group of people that said, holy crap. The, oh, what, everything's collapsing. I'm going to buy a shit ton of this toilet paper. <laughs> that, that, that's the group of people. That's the ma- the majority of people out there, I think. They're not saying, oh, wow, it's running low again. I'll buy some more. That's not happening that much. I, you're just assuming, but my point is I think yep, that that's common wrong. Common sense. That's no. That's, 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 that's my common sense is right. That is a wrong. That's a wrong I just, assumption. I just saw a picture of somebody walking assumption. away with like twenty rolls. Man, she's confirmation not, bias. Yeah, uh. that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm embracing. <laughs> I embrace my confirmation bias. Hasty I say we sort this out when we have more hindsight. Damn it! Oh, no. hindsight. Uh. Nice. <laughs> All right, we're gonna shift away from the uh, the toilet paper news. We're, we're gonna do two two quick astronomy news items. Evan, you're gonna tell us about mining space, specifically the moon. But it is more about space in general. Yep, that's right. It is more about space in general. But the news item is that there's been a new executive order that's been passed down from the Trump administration. It's called Encouraging International Support on the Recovery and Use of Space Resources. He signed it on April 6th. It further cements the U.S. policy on the collection and usage of non-terrestrial resources, primarily the moon. This declaration references actually the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which is a real thing, and it's the basis upon which this executive order has been declared. Part of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty allows for the use of resources originating and existing in space. Here's the particular phrase that I believe they are referencing. It's Article 1, Paragraph 2. Outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be free for exploration and use by all states, meaning countries, without discrimination of any kind on a basis of equality and in accordance with international law, and there shall be free access to all the areas of celestial bodies. Um, lol. How did they think that was going to work out? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, the the treaty specifically forbids any claims of ownership of anything in space. So that's clear. You can't own, you cannot make a claim of ownership. 
according to this treaty. But specifically, it does say exploration and use without discrimination. So that's the gist upon which this executive order is being based. Now, real quick on executive orders, for those of you who don't live in the United States or even those who do are not familiar with it, the executive, which is the president, can issue binding orders, which, so long as they are deemed constitutional, becomes the official policy or position of the administration. And they remain in effect until revoked, either by the sitting executive or by a future executive. So that's how those generally work. Now, this policy of our freedom to explore and use the materials in space is a view that has had uh, precedence and long sway. Um, we never signed the 1979 Moon Treaty, which stipulates that that treaty stipulates that you can't use the moon for anything other than scientific use. But that one hasn't really been signed by any major spacefaring nation. So it's considered not really any kind of binding contract or treaty affecting any anyone who can get to the moon or any country that can get there. And also to help bolster the position in 2015, our Congress passed a law explicitly allowing American companies and citizens to use moon and asteroid resources. So basically helping promote the mining of the moon, asteroids, and other things. Now, ultimately, this is a piece of a larger puzzle on the administration's plans for NASA and the American space program in general, both public and private. The larger puzzle is called Space Policy Directive 1, Reinvigorating America's Human Space Exploration Program. We've actually talked about it a little bit on the SGU almost a year ago because it included in that program the Artemis Program. At the time we spoke about it, almost a year ago, it was leaked information, but now it's pretty well known. Artemis aims to land two astronauts on the moon in 2024 and to establish a sustainable human presence on and around Earth's moon by 2028. And the lunar resources, especially water ice, uh, thought to be plentiful in the permanently shadowed floors of the polar craters, are the key to this grand ambition of the Artemis project. But the U.S. will also, and they said this in the executive order, seek to negotiate joint statements and bilateral and multilateral arrangements with foreign states, other countries, regarding safe and sustainable operations for the public and private recovery and use of space resources. So that is the space news in regards to what's happening with the moon and what our ambitions are to actually go there. This just kind of further cements what our plans have been for some time. We're going to go there and we're going to use those resources. I really do hope for the betterment of the entire planet Earth and all people. Yeah, so I mean, it's my interpretation of it, this isn't like a statement that we're going to actually do anything. This is just basically the United States asserting its right to exploit space and to thumb our nose at any international treaties or agreements limiting our ability to unilaterally exploit the resources of, of outer space. Yep, it says like the the United, yep, the United States is going to act and... With or without rest of the world. Yeah. And that's basically it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The, the whole idea is interesting. So certainly we want to, I think, make it easy for for private investors, private companies to progress the private space you know, technology. And part of the incentive for doing that, uh, you're going to make profit, right? You're going to be able to mine asteroids or whatever make billions, trillions of dollars, and then that will get us, you know, the, that will bootstrap a commercial space industry. But at the same time, we do have to, I think, as internationally, I do think we have to address this issue of, well, who has the right to mine anything in the solar system? You know what I mean? Is it is it just first come, first serve? Uh, you know, whoever gets there and puts their stamp on it, they own it? 
or is there should there be should we all agree on some rules you know there should be rules yeah there should be some agreement in, in this and again you know if if they if the stated purpose is for the benefit of all humanity then yeah, yeah, there should be there should be these kinds of considerations made. There are certainly. But is that the stated purpose in the executive order or well, in the treaty? Yeah, it's not right. The executive order is basically saying we're not going to be diplomatic about this. Deal with the rest of the world. Right, right. But then, sort of backing to the treaty, which says, okay, so the reason, you know, part of the reason why we're doing this, ultimately, the big picture, it's for the greater good of people everywhere. Yeah, but isn't the executive order basically saying f your treaty? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I don't know if it's really saying that. They're saying it's based on one of the principles on the first article, in fact, of the of treaty. Of course, they're going to find a justification, but there's no need for an executive order. This is this is like a formalization of a middle finger on paper. Basically. Yeah, that was, that was otherwise my there would be no purpose to write the executive order. The treaty's already in place. They, they have uh, lawyers who uh, work specifically analyzing uh, space treaties and and other and other space related legal matters. If you can, cool believe. lawyers. Yeah, they're called space lawyers. That's pretty cool. That wow. is pretty cool. Now, uh, before I go off this, I mean, you can't leave you can't leave that thread hanging. If you're going to have space lawyers, you got to have space lawyer jokes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> for example, <laughs> sure. for example, how do you become a space lawyer? You have to pass the space bar. Space bar. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I like it. Okay, so what's a space lawyer's favorite social media site? MySpace. Oh, oh okay, that's enough. Now, what, wait, there's more. <laughs> All right, Bob. Yes. I, see, there's a lot of email is, me. This is my version of the executive order on the SGU. <laughs> I get to say unilaterally that we're moving on to the next Can I have one more? Okay. <laughs> All right, Bob, tell us about Comet Atlas. So, yeah, Comet Atlas. You know, I was going to talk about this big comet news last week, and the uh, it got pushed back. So I'm doing it now. So uh, so there's new news. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my talk as I would have done it last week. And then at the end, I'll just add the little extra. Okay? Mm-hmm. How does that sound? So, okay. So there's a new comet in town. And, uh, there, you know, there's no guarantee, but it could very well be the best comet you will ever see, even potentially in the daytime. So I've been waiting for a naked eye comet for years. Uh, I was just so disappointed. So So disappointed. With, uh, with some of the comets that I had, had high hopes for, especially Halley's Comet. Oh, my God. Worst uh, viewing in huge, 2,000 years. Worst, yes. Worst. <laughs> it was not, only, not only was it farther away than usual, it was, of course, incredibly overcast. So let's not dwell on that, shall we? Painful so here's memories. what Astronomy Magazine said. Right now, odds are that Comet C2019Y4 Atlas will be wonderful. Just maybe it will be the most amazing thing you will ever see. A great comet for the history books. Wow. So this is a Comet Atlas, also more technically C2019Y4. This was discovered December 29th, 2019. Uh, You may remember 2019. Uh, That's the year that now seems more amazingly awesome than ever, considering the year that followed it. I remember. The discovery was made by Atlas Terrestrial Impact, Last Alert System. That's where Atlas comes from. And uh, it was, it's actually one of the few automated surveys of the sky looking for potentially nasty Earth-crossing asteroids. And, you know, it just occurred to me, this is an example of a country seriously planning for a low probability but especially deadly natural event. 
How refreshing <laughs> is that? So refreshing that that even happens. So, but as Steve and my Spanish teacher, Mr. Airberry, would say after a tangent, Steve, what did he say? What would he say? Anywho. Anywho. Um, so, uh, so why? Just why is this potentially world-class comet that awesome? Why could it potentially be mm. that way? And it has to do with its changing magnitude. This, this is why we think it's so special. And magnitude is a special thing in astronomy. Um, in this context, magn- magnitude is a measure of the brightness of an object. Um, sure. it, ha- it has no units. So you would say something like it's a magnitude seven star, something like that. You'd say it like that. So each increment, though, from one magnitude to the next, that change um, is an increase in the brightness by a factor of uh, the fifth root of 100, which is two, about two and a half, a little bit more than two and a half times. So a magnitude seven star is about two and a half times brighter than a magnitude six star. And there's numbers for everything, everything that you could see in the sky. The sun has an apparent magnitude of minus 27. So it kind of goes up to minus 27. That's, that's super bright. That's the star. Nothing's really going to be much brighter than that unless you're close to a nuclear blast or something. So there's Sirius, uh, the brightest star in the sky. That's minus like 1.46 magnitude. The full moon is a minus 13. So it's bright, mm-hmm. very bright, of course, full moon. A minus four. So, the, so a minus four you could see during the day with a naked eye. Uh, when the sun is out, you will see something that's that's a minus four. That's bright enough to see during the day. Or, you know, minus four, minus five. Uh, other stars, Polaris is a two, positive two. So the limit of the for the naked eye is a, is magnitude six. If you're higher than a magnitude six, you're just too dim. You need binoculars or telescopes or something. So um, and these are all apparent magnitudes. That's how they appear from the perspective of Earth. There's also an absolute magnitude, which is really cool. That calculates what the apparent magnitude would be if the object were moved to 10 parsecs, uh, which is th- 32.6 light years away. Now, the, the comets themselves, we've all see, heard of this. They're cosmic snowballs, right? Frozen gases, rock and dust, and that's about it. The increasing heat of the sun during their approach causes an outgassing, right? So you're, you're creating basically an atmosphere around the comet that's called a coma. And that coma can actually be sometimes 15 Earth diameters or larger. Mm. Atlas, Atlas, they are saying that at the coma of Atlas, the atmosphere of Atlas could be many times bigger than Jupiter itself. Gargantuan. Gargantuan. Mm. But of course, this is, you know, it's, it's kind of a diffuse light. And when, when you calculate the magnitude of a comet, uh, it's it's kind of they they take all that light that's in the coma and they squish it down into like a star sized object and tell you the magnitude. But it's a little bit more diffuse because it's spread out. Now, the comet's dust and ionized gas particles famously extend what into the distinct tails, different types of tails uh, with the ion tail always pointing away from the sun. The uh, the dust tail kind of lags behind a little bit. Now, all of these outgassed particles reflect light, right? They reflect light and they even glow. Uh, on their own. And that brings the, the comet to visual life and greatly increasing the magnitude um, as it approaches, ever increasing for the most part. Okay. So, so that is why Atlas is so startling. Its magnitude is changing far beyond what is typical. In December, um, it was uh, like a close to a 20th magnitude. I think it was 19.6 uh, magnitude, which is so faint, uh, very, very faint. This is three astronomical units from the sun, about 400,000 times dimmer than naked eye visibility. I mean, there's no way you were ever going to see that. Very, very dim. But by March 7th, it was already a magnitude plus eight. That's Mm. over 600 times brighter than was forecast. So this thing was skyrocketing up in brightness. And this is what what got people so excited, including me. Yeah, let's get to negative 27. 
But remember, <laughs> now comets are unpredictable and quixotic. Many, right. in, many in the past have looked incredibly promising, only to fizzle out. So you've got to keep you got to keep that in mind. You know, some have looked great. Next thing you know, they just start dimming, disappear, break apart. I mean, so you can't. There's no firm predictions that you can make. Just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best. But you know, with these best case scenarios, it's it was hard not to get a little excited. And the other big thing I wanted to talk about with this comet is that the tail, the star of the show, really is the tail. Uh, one article said it interestingly. They said, you know, when you're a grandparent and you're talking about this comet in 30, 30 years, you're going to be talking about that tail, not the coma so much, but the tail. And the tail for this one looks like it could be magnificent, uh, changing from a brilliant emerald to maybe transitioning to a blue as the ionization ramps up. Um, and the tail is going to be extra, extra bright because its orientation is such that it's reflecting even more light than you would normally get, increasing increasing um, its magnitude by one or two times. Uh, so even that. And then there could be something called a disconnection event where the tail appears to break away and then reform a short time, li- a short time later. So just magnificent sights that we could potentially see. Uh, when it when it when it reaches perihelion, say end of May, I mean, and it gets to, and don't forget, like I said, some predictions have it to plus one to minus five magnitude, which means that it could potentially be daytime visible, which is oh, such incredible icing on the cake. So that's my report as of last week. In the past week, well, to sum up developments, I would say, just forget seventy percent of the shit I just said. <laughs> What? Why? So you know, you know why? You know why? Because the damn comet has basically broken up. <gasps> it's just oh, what? Like, it's just oh, like just Bob, I'm sorry, on. man. And yet again, yet again, something awesome in the sky doesn't happen because I'm cursed. <laughs> you know, it's it must, because you know, we chose to do this news item. Right? Last are, week, you know, it? are you happy now, universe? If that's All your right. real name. Are you happy now? It's that 5G radiation broken. Ah, it's clear. This Bob, I don't say this that often, but I, I recommend you start drinking heavily. <laughs> Jay, it's a pandemic. Everyone's drinking heavily, my friend. So I just, as, as a matter of fact, I just saw on the conversation that, that, that alcohol sales are way yep. up because everyone's drinking alcohol, to forget yeah. the pandemic. Amazing. So since last week, the, bright, the brightness stalled. And then after that, it started to decrease steadily and like, oh, ne- that's not good. And then they looked at images and they, what they, it showed what was this elongated pseudo nucleus that kind of lined up with the tail. And that's exactly, yep, exactly what you would expect to see when, when the excrement hits the fan or as astronomers <laughs> call it, a major, a major disruption of the comet. Oh, yes, Aww. of course. Right. So then they did follow-up <laughs> observations in recent days, and they just confirmed the belief that the comet has broken up. So this is not going to be even a naked eye at night comet. Forget no. about naked eye during the day. Um, you know, maybe your maybe your binoculars or, you know, you'll probably see something with uh, telescopes for sure. Almost certainly there'll be something there that might be kind of cool. But, man, you know, the great naked eye comet of 2020 is now not going to happen. And and crap. It fizzled. Yeah, it fizzled. fizzled out. The Bob effect. Yep. <laughs> I, will, I, will say, I will say no more. It was going to come really close. I mean, it is going to get the pieces of it coming really close to Earth. Relatively. I mean, it was going to be just spectacular. I've never seen such exuberant, you know, such excitement. If it held together, and, it would have been awesome. Yeah, it would have. It would like the guy, like astronomy.com uh, said, it would be, you know, the, what was the exact Once quote? Yeah, it would have been magnificent. It seemed like it was It was going to be magnificent. Oh, but boy. this is what happens with, with comets. It's damn. How about, Bob, will we get a uh, meteor shower at least out of it? I guess, you know, uh, I guess that's possible because, that, yeah, that's what meteor showers are 
favorite composer, right? The debris from from comets, yeah. and uh, and this one, this comet's especially fascinating because this was they think they, the theory is that this comet is just a piece of some mega comet, a, a very old mega Ooh. comet that broke apart uh, so very very long ago. Uh, that comet must have been truly amazing. But uh, some of the comets that we see, they they think are along the same, have the same orbit as that that, that mega comet mm-hmm. did from so long ago. But that uh, they're not they're not certain um, if that's the case. But it's just uh, just another interesting little tangent and side side piece to this. Well, I thought that was going to be an exciting end to Oh my god, dude! <laughs> yeah, right. Womp, womp, I was like, you know, this pandemic this pandemic womp, sucks, womp. but look at this epic comet. But no. Yeah. Hey Bob. Hey Bob. Yo. What do you call a space lawyer who doesn't lie? <laughs> what? Serious. Ah, all right, nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you had to throw that in there, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I got more. Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Steve, last week I played a noisy. Mm-hmm. Now, what I decided to do was instead of play back the noisy, I'm going to try to simulate it with my mouth. So here it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Quite the simulation. Yeah. Be careful. If you have sensitive ears or you're listening with headphones, just turn the volume down a little bit when you hear the the segment start, just in case I do forget. That would be a little bit smarter, I think, because it's also very hard for me to judge what it's actually going to sound like in your headphones. So anyway, I'm sorry. Let's work together on this. No need to send me angry emails anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Okay. So now. I'll stop. All right, guys. What was that? But wasn't there – so I listened to it carefully and there seemed to be some kind of electrical discharge at the very end. That's a good guess. Um, Jim Kelly wrote in and said, hi, I think this week's noisy is the sound of a machine that takes its felled trees and trims off branches and bark and cuts them into lumber. I've seen that. They have a machine yeah, right? that, you, that they attach to a tree and it runs up the tree like this machine that cool. like circles the tree and it cuts all the limbs off. And then it comes right back down, and they, then they can cut the tree down much safer. Uh, that is not it, but that was a cool guess. Evan, your guess was interesting. Listen to this. Uh, this was sent in by a listener that – wait, what is this? Uh, he said, you evil, evil people. That was the <laughs> – uh, Oh, okay. Th- that was the subject of the email. It's Cillian Brown said, laying there prone, bright lights, the smell of mouthwash. That noisy is some people's soul getting their tooth drilled, hmm. cleaned, potholed. <laughs> <laughs> the giveaway is the sound of the water being vacuumed up at the end. So I got one more guess. Uh, this one I had to read. This was from Zan von Ackerman. Hello, Jay. Not handsome, Bob. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. This one is the awesome. Uh, this one's awesome and exactly the quarantine distraction I needed. There's a sound that comes in near the end and is the last sound heard to me. It is a arcing transformer or other 60 hertz electrical short. All the rest of that sounds like gas escaping or fireworks. And he he goes on to describe the sound that he's hearing. Now, this was very close, very close, but someone did nail it. And this was Mark Schroyer. And Mark said, the last bit, uh, bit of this week's noisy, that noisy sounds distinctively like electricity arcing through the air. So my first guess is that this week's noisy is the sound of a stick or a branch that has fallen across power lines, whistling mm. as current flows through it until it fully ignites, creating an arc. Whoa. Listen to this again now. Yeah. Yep. 
Electricity, you hear that? I believe it. Yeah. It's like it's like the stick is screaming. It's yeah. lost. Life. Yes. It had a good sad. death though, you know? Yeah. Huh. So thank you, Christopher yeah. Beck, for sending that in. Uh that was a very cool noisy. The electricity is always fascinating to me. I have a new noisy for this week. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Always Geologizing. Yeah. <laughs> and here it is. So I will let you know that this week's noisy is one of those interpreted noisies. You know what I mean? Yes. They have taken data from something and they have transformed it into musical notes. Mm. Does that make sense to you? I remember I promised that Mm -hmm. I would do that if I I pulled out one of those types. But anyway, you're going to love it if if this is your first time hearing it. And if it isn't your first time hearing it, you can. Everybody is welcome to guess. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jay. Steve, I got to tell you something. Yeah. Go ahead. Now, Nexus. Nexus is a conference that usually consists of people getting together in New York City, but we can't do that this year because there's a pandemic, right? Yeah. So what we decided to do was start a digital conference this year. Nexus. NECSS.org. If you go there, you'll see that we are having an online streaming conference. This will happen on what date, Steve? August 1st. See how you can just whip out answers like that, Evan? That's right. August 1st. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> August like 1st. Yeah. So it's going to be really simple. Right now, we have an early bird price of $25. That means that at some point in the future, the price will go up. But if you do decide to, to do it, all you need to do is Grab a couple of your friends, buy entry into this, and sit there and watch us entertain you all day with awesome speakers and fun events that we're planning. We're uh, in full swing right now. Planning is going very well. We have made uh, a lot of great momentum, especially with the technology part of this, so we feel very confident about everything and really not worried at all. It's going to be just a lot of fun, and it'll be really cool. We're going to be doing an opener on Friday night, and then the full conference will be on August 1st. And that will be probably a very long day of of talks and entertainment, so you can come in and join us when you're available. We really hope that you do it. And anybody that buys tickets for this year will be getting a discount for MeetSpace Conference happening in 2021, which will be happening in Atlantic City, which I am so psyched Ooh. about. Oh, my so God. Fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and believe me, when I tell you, wait till I start putting up the marketing for that. The hotel is amazing. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> but you know what? The streaming Nexus is going to be a lot of fun. So join us this year. Get a discount for next year. Put a smile on Steve's face for crying out loud. I know how hard it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you, Jay. Joining us now is Dr. Kevin Peter Hand. Kevin, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thanks. Great to be here. And you are the director of the Ocean Worlds Lab at JPL, and you have a, a huge interest in the big question, is there life in the water under the surface of Europa? So tell us what you're doing there. Yeah, the um, one of the big revolutions in our understanding of, of habitable environments, environments beyond Earth that has occurred 
over the course of the past few decades is that we now have good reason to predict that vast, potentially global liquid water oceans exist beneath the icy shells of many moons of the outer solar system. And among these uh, alien oceans or ocean worlds, uh, Europa, a moon of Jupiter, Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, and Titan, another moon of Saturn, kind of rise to the top as premier locales where we could search for and potentially find extant or living life that's uh, that's there today, just uh, uh, swimming along. I'm sure that you guys think about it, but like, what kind of life would that be? And do you imagine it in your head? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> not, not literally. Uh, I definitely imagine it in my head, and I go through a bunch of this uh, uh, in my book, Alien Oceans. And and uh, but you know, to be clear, when I talk about the search for life beyond Earth, I'm primarily talking about the search for the tiniest of microbe, and even sure. just a tiny speck of life would revolutionize our understanding of, of biology and the origin of life and whether or not we live in a biological universe or one in which life on Earth is some sort of biological singularity. <laughs> if you had to guess, uh, would you suspect that life elsewhere in this solar system is related to life on Earth or completely uh, different origin? Yeah, well, so that's such an important question, and it's key to what makes these alien oceans like Europa's so scientifically important. And let me give you kind of a compare and contrast. Mars, we all love Mars. Mars is fantastic. I do some work on Mars, and on Mars, we are um, primarily searching for evidence of past life, uh, life that's fossilized in the rock record. And that's great, but it could be problematic in terms of figuring out how the biochemistry works. So if we find some fossilized microbes in ancient rocks on Mars, those rocks will not preserve the DNA or whatever the molecule is that um, uh, that gave rise to that life. Hmm. So that that's challenging in terms of you know, ex, uh, extinct life doesn't offer, offer you much hope of connecting it to the tree of life here on Earth. And then coupled with that, Mars, as you obviously know, is uh, one of our closest planetary neighbors. And throughout the solar system, Earth has been sending rocks to Mars and Mars has been sending rocks to Earth. And thus, there could be a decent chance that life on Earth seeded life on Mars or vice versa. That is not the case, or, or it's much, much less likely in the far reaches of the outer solar system where these alien oceans exist. So you've got these liquid water environments where life could be alive today, and they are protected from uh, seeding from the Earth and and, uh, and possibly Mars. And so that means that even if we found DNA-based life on Europa, I think it would, with a few caveats, point towards an independent origin of life within Europa that biochemically converged towards the DNA, RNA, protein paradigm that drives all life on Earth. And, and so there's some really interesting contingency versus convergence uh, things to explore with respect to biochemical evolution just within our own solar system. I think that alone makes the universe a much more interesting place if the life, if there's life in the in our outer solar system that it derived from a totally different way of coming about. That just makes the universe so much more interesting. Right. It, it, it means that at the end of the day, really what we're talking about is, is the origin of life easy or hard? Right. 
And mm-hmm. if it's easy, life is everywhere. And it seems right. it seems easy, doesn't it? In, in some ways, and I mean, there's a lot we can't say about what could be under there. But I think one thing we can definitively say is that it would have to be chemosynthetic. I mean, right? It's not it's not going to be photosynthetic because right. yeah. no, you're not getting any sun. So that's one thing. And we have chemosynthetic organisms on the Earth. Also, one thing that I I, I keep saying about you know why why is there life. In Europa, and to me, it's like all right. You've got a water environment. You've got a sort. You've got heat, right? The tidal stresses from from Jupiter, and you, right. and you've got and min- you got minerals or something like that. I mean, you, those you put those components together. Am I missing anything? What else? I mean, that that's what you need. If you have that, then there's a good chance you've got something. Yeah, that's right. So you you've basically encapsulated the the keystones for habitability, which are liquid water, uh, access to the elements that are needed to build life, things like carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. Phosphorus, sulfur—it's—it's it's basically a, a a smattering of 54 elements from the periodic table, and then uh, aside from the liquid water and the elements, the building blocks—you need some form of energy. And and as you mentioned, uh, chemosynthesis is the best game in town when you're cut off from the sun, and that of course would be the case uh, beneath the icy shells deep in the oceans of of Europa and Enceladus. Yeah, this this seems like such a no brainer to me. I I just I would if I had you know my way, I would focus. I would put so much more focus on this and into what you're doing, that because to me this is that's the discovery to be made in this solar system. Pluto was wonderful. So many discoveries are fantastic, but the, the odds are so good that that there's some life already there on Europa and Enceladus that I think I would just pour as many as many resources as I could into it because it's just so compelling and to me such such a I would make that bet any day it just seems so clear that it's you know I'd be shocked if there wasn't something there uh, who knows but well it would tell us something about the probability of life you know bootstrapping itself Kevin is there any reason to suspect that life is more or less likely on Europa versus Enceladus versus Titan or are they pretty much equally likely yeah, it's it's a great question, and there's a lot of debate in our community uh, uh, about this topic. And I, for one, rank um, – oh, it's like picking a favorite child, right? <laughs> uh, and, and the, uh, but uh, uh, here's – let me just take Europa and Enceladus uh, first and foremost. Uh, both are fantastic, and, and we certainly have an incredible amount of data from the Cassini spacecraft about Enceladus, and the plumes at Enceladus allowed the Cassini spacecraft – to dive right through and, and taste uh, material that was erupting out of the, the subsurface ocean there. Meanwhile, at the Gal- uh, with the Galileo spacecraft at Europa, there were challenges with the high-gain antenna, and Europa's much larger, and, and plumes were not detected at Europa at that time. But let me give you a couple of ways to think about it. First and foremost, Europa, we have good reason to predict, has an ocean today and its ocean has been there for much of the history of the solar system. So when it comes to this kind of fourth keystone for habitability in life, time, time mm. Europa and its ocean has been stable and, uh, and available for life for quite some time. At Enceladus, uh, there are still a lot of question marks about exactly how Enceladus came to be and how long its ocean has been there. Now, that could be a, a moot point. You know, maybe the origin of life doesn't take that long. Maybe uh, it's not a big issue. But if I had to pick, I would want the ocean that's been around longer. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Coupled with that, Europa is embedded in Jupiter's magnetic field. And that magnetic field irradiates Europa's surface. Hmm. 
Why yeah, is that deadly. significant to life? Well, it's it's deadly for us, and it, and it's a it's a challenge for robotic vehicles. But there's a a beautiful thing that happens chemically on on Europa's surface that could benefit Ooh. any life within the ocean below, and that is. Well, <laughs> you need life before you really get mutation. Right. Well, so um, this comes back to the chemosynthesis, uh, you know, the energy for life. Hydrothermal vents, which we think could exist on Europa's seafloor, and at Enceladus, the Cassini spacecraft gave us some, some good evidence about um, possible hydrothermalism on that world. Uh, hydrothermal vents are great sources of electrons in the redox battery powering of life as we know it. In other words, like ATP. Well, yeah, yeah, ATP then folds in at sort of a higher level, but really the the way life works is through the economy of electrons and extracting the negative change in Gibbs free energy of the environment. And I won't go into detail on that. Um, except I know, <laughs> well, well, Gibbs, actually Gibbs is one of my favorite physicists. Uh, uh he was actually a professor at Yale. Uh, and, um, uh, just highly underappreciated. Uh, and so Gibbs did a lot of great work on geochemistry and, and thermodynamics. But so what life ultimately does is harnesses that negative change in Gibbs free energy in the environment and also accelerates the production of entropy. But the way in which life does that is by grabbing an electron from one compound and giving it to another compound. And it's, kind of analogous to a battery where you've got a negative terminal and a positive terminal. Mm-hmm. And seafloors, such as our seafloor and potentially Europa's seafloor and Enceladus' seafloor, are like the negative terminal. And life needs a positive terminal. It needs the oxidant to go along with the reductant. And that could be a limiting factor for life in these alien oceans. But at Europa, the radiation environment on the ice on the surface of Europa yields hydrogen peroxide, sulfate, and molecular oxygen in the ice. The electrons, the ions, and everything are coming in and splitting apart the water molecules, uh, H2O, splitting that. Some recombines into H2O2, some recombines into O2, and we actually know that peroxide, oxygen, sulfate, and a bunch of other oxidants that could be useful for life are in the ice on Europa's surface. So then if that subducts into the ocean below, now you can complete that biochemical battery and the race is on for, for wow. life in that ocean. So just to circle back on one thing, because I was thinking about that, that isn't there any you know connection between the ice on the surface and the water below the ice? There are fissures we know that open up from time to time, and you're talking about subduction. If that's true, then couldn't life from a meteorite from Earth get subducted down into the water uh, in Europa and seed life that way? Potentially. There, there, there is a... Uh, zero chance. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a heck of a lot harder. And part of that also is that when you look at the, at the ejecta, that would make it out to, uh, out to Jupiter. It's generally small rocks. Um, and there's a whole problem of something surviving for that long in a smaller mm-hmm. rock. But now you're careening into the Jovian system and you're impacting Europa at you know, tens, if not many tens of kilometers per second. And you're obliterating 
whatever was in that that little uh, ejecta onto the surface of Europa. So your your mm-hmm. impact velocity uh, also serves as another kind of protective yeah. extinguishing factor. Even a bugbear couldn't survive that. Yeah, there's no atmosphere to slow it down, and th- and that's an interesting contrast with Titan, where uh, an incoming uh, meteorite actually gets decelerated. Uh, and um, could kind of do a, a softer landing on the surface of Titan. So we didn't talk about Titan yet. So and that that doesn't usually come up as often when we, when we talk about yeah. life on you know uh, sub ice oceans in the in the outer solar system. So what what what's the quick summary on Titan? What's the possibility of life there? Right. So um, Europa and Enceladus are great places to put forth the hypothesis of water and carbon-based life out there in, in oceans beyond Earth. Titan also has a liquid water ocean beneath its icy crust, but as you appreciate, Titan also has on its surface liquid methane and ethane lakes and seas. And so part of what I love about Titan is that this is a great place to search for weird life. In other, in other words, life completely unlike life as we know it. If there, if there were to be life within the lakes of Titan, it would probably use methane or ethane as the solvent of life. We obviously use liquid water. Water is a polar solvent. Uh, in chemistry, like dissolves like, and so the, the polar solvent of water serves us very well. Liquid methane is nonpolar, uh, and so if that's going to be your solvent, now you're dissolving nonpolar compounds. And, and it's just, you know, it's hard for us to even put forth a really strong hypothesis for how that life would work. But who knows? You know, uh, Mother Nature doesn't care what we think. She, she could just be cranking away with some bizarre life forms uh, crawling along the shorelines of, of uh, Titan's lakes and seas. Now, isn't it true that if there is the potential for life – there that it's probably Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cool. I think we'd be hearing about seeing something about that by now. Uh, well, I sure hope so because we we do actually have a um an amazing mission going to Titan. Uh, it was just approved. Boy, the years are passing quickly on me these days. I forget if it was last summer or the summer before. But this is the Dragonfly mission, and I'm a, a, a co-investigator on that mission. It's run out of the Applied Physics Lab uh, down in Maryland. And uh, this is a mission that is a, a rotorcraft. So think of like a, a very large and, and uh, more capable version of those drones that you see. And it's going to come into Titan's atmosphere in the mid-2030s, release a parachute, then kind of unfold a bit and fire up those, those, um, those rotors and essentially helicopter around the, uh, the surface of Titan uh, and landing – grabbing samples uh, and looking for signs of life and studying the geology and geophysics of Titan. It's going to be a, a, a fantastic uh, mission. What other missions are coming up? And, and what tell us about Europa. So at Europa, we've got the Europa Clipper mission, which will hopefully get to the launch pad in the next few years. And depending on the launch vehicle, the, the rocket that it rides on, it'll get out to Jupiter and Europa in the late 2020s. That mission will orbit Jupiter and it'll fly by Europa. It won't, um, it, it doesn't have a lander. It, uh, uh, it does remote sensing. And so it'll fly by Europa and give us an incredible 
close up at a at a global and regional scale uh, of Europa's surface. And I'm a co-investigator on that mission, and and it's a, a a wonderful mission. I'm also helping to lead an effort to try and get a lander to the surface of Europa, and that mm. we were originally hoping to launch just a few years after the Clipper mission, but right now we're kind of in a um, limbo. A we're still pattern. studying it, but we're in a holding pattern. That's exactly right. So no definite plans to land on Europa. No definite plans to land on Europa. But even landing on Europa isn't going to give us the definitive answer on the big question. At some point, we're going to have to drill down into the water, right? Well, not unless it, it spews out through, through like a geyser. I mean, the, the lander on Europa would be is going to land near one of those, isn't it? So it could potentially find some biology ejected. That's right. And so the um, both Enceladus and Europa have very young icy crusts. At Enceladus, we obviously see the jets erupting out and that those, those plumes of material are repaving the surface of Enceladus. At Europa, we can actually see oceanic salts on the surface of Europa. Uh, and so we know that oceanic material is coming up to the surface and being emplaced on the surface somehow. So if we're seeing salts, might there be organics and biosignatures within that material also? Uh, and so we think that if we land in a salty patch in a, in a fresh uh, region of oceanic material on Europa's surface, we might also find signs of life. And we've got to land on the surface before we melt through the ice anyway, because uh, we need to figure out more about the surface composition, the surface physical properties, uh, and the exact thickness of the ice in order to then design a, a probe that could melt or drill through the ice and eventually get all the way to the ocean. Are any other countries planning missions to Europa or Enceladus? And is there like an international cooperation going on at that well, not, not an international cooperation. We, we tried to do that back in the, in the, uh, the mid to late 2000s. But, um, NASA and the European Space Agency, uh, ended up going their separate ways, though there's still a lot of close partnerships on these missions. And so the European Space Agency, ESA, has a mission that will go out to Jupiter. It'll fly by Europa twice and then it'll go into orbit around Ganymede. And Ganymede's another one of these worlds that's covered in ice, but beneath its icy shell, we think it too has a, a liquid water ocean. And uh, it could have life also. The only challenge with Ganymede is that uh, its ice shell is very thick. And so to the extent that we use these ice shells as windows into the ocean below, uh, for Ganymede, that's a, that's a harder story mm -hmm. to tease out. And what's the earliest where you know, we could theoretically be getting that kind of data back from Europa? Well, you know, this stuff is not for the faint of heart. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few years ago, we were, we were on track to uh, possibly land on the surface of Europa in the early 2030s. But as I mentioned, we're, we're in a holding pattern now. Um, the, the basic math is that as soon as we get out of that holding pattern, it's roughly 14 years until landing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if we got out of that holding pattern in a few years, we could land on the surface of Europa in the mid 2030s. Uh, if it takes longer, it would be the mid or to late 2030s. And if it's, 
if we're stuck in that holding pattern for a really long time, we're looking at the 2040s, 2050s, 2060s. Oh boy. I'm going to be, I'm yeah. going to be dead. You know, I'm just going to be dead when this happens. <laughs> See, this, this is, you know, if we had superheroes, this is what I would want them to do. Forget the crime, forget the arch villains, take this lander and fly it to Europa and just put it there <laughs> and then come back and it'll be there. You do it fast. You could, you could fly to there in no time, right? Well, now to be clear, a superhero would arguably be a good biosignature in and of itself, right? So, uh, uh, of, of alien life. I have a different uh, study working on him, but get the lander to Europa first. Well, Kevin, this has been really a fascinating yeah. interview. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Hey, thanks so much, and uh, love the work you all do, and uh, you know, keep helping the world think critically about uh, the universe. Thanks. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. But before we get to this week's science or fiction, a couple of corrections from last week. So this was the fiction item, so it didn't matter. But I said that um, the Mulga snake, it had the most potent venom. Yeah, you did. Uh, and several people pointed out that it was it's actually the Inland Taipan, which I actually mentioned last week as other sources said it's the Inland Taipan. I've been trying to resolve the conflict and I have been unable to so far, meaning uh -huh. that different references give different numbers for the LD50 of how potent each venom is. Uh, and there are references which say the Inland Taipan has the lowest LD50. There are those that say the Eastern Brown Snake, which is a close relative of the King Brown Snake, which is the name for the Mulga Snake that I mentioned. So I haven't been able to co confirm what the actual answer is. Yes, there are lots of sources that say the Inland Taipan is, has the most potent venom. But if you look at, for example, the snakedatabase.org, it gives the Eastern Brown Snake as having the lowest LD50. So anyway, I haven't been able to find a consensus. Maybe there's a snake venom expert out there who could tell me what's going on. Maybe some of these references are older than others or they're using different methods. I don't know. None of this matters in terms of, you know, which was right or wrong because that was all the fiction anyway. Because the, the science was the toothy snail. The right, harpoon the tooth. tooth. <laughs> yeah, harpoon yeah, the tooth, tooth shooting tooth snail that Jay didn't believe. <laughs> Um, one other quick one. This wasn't related to science or fiction, but we were talking about the uh, methanol. Oh yeah, we got a lot of emails on mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting little thing. Yeah, uh, little. Yeah, so it's a, it's a common misconception that no, but I knew that too. I just didn't remember it. Correctly. I know that you hate that when you know something yes. so you don't quite remember yeah. it, but because there's so many little nuanced details. But just for the record, when you make moonshine, right, your home distilling alcohol, uh, yes, you can create. Uh, the, dis the distillation process will create um, methanol and other lower boiling point contaminants like, like acetone, aldehydes, etc. But these are in small amounts, too small to cause blindness or any significant toxicity. They will, however, make the moonshine taste bad and will worsen your hangover. And so uh -huh. what you know, moonshiners who know what they're doing will discard the first few ounces, which contain all of these lower boiling point non-desirable compounds like methanol. However, it is true that you can get methanol toxicity from moonshine, but not because of the distillation process, 
but because some unscrupulous moonshiners deliberately add it into their product because methanol is cheap. It -hmm. gives you the same effect as, as ethanol, as regular, you know, alcohol, uh, in the short term. So like when you're getting drunk, it feels the same, but in the long term, of course, the hangover is much worse and it can cause you to go blind if you can take enough of it. So, yeah, so it, there, you can get blindness from methanol in moonshine, but it's not because of the distillation process. It's, it's because it's deliberately added just to, well, as a cheap substitute for alcohol. Didn't we also get emails that, that said, and I remember learning this, but now I'm like, is that a wives' tale too, that government officials or anti-bootleggers were actually putting methanol into supply chains that they found to prevent people from drinking? Because, like you said, it does taste really bad. And so people wouldn't want to drink it, and maybe they didn't have the foresight to realize how actually toxic it was. Yeah, I mean, so I did find like, uh, I did find references that that during prohibition, the mm-hmm. government did did oh, quote unquote okay. poison the alcohol. Yeah, um, but I don't think yeah, they were intending but, to blind a bunch of citizens. I think yeah. they were trying to make people go, "Yeah, you want to drink bootlegged alcohol? Well, it's going to be disgusting, or it's going to be you know, it's going to make you sick, basically." So make it a turn off, right? It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there was an official poisoning program apparently during prohibition. Isn't that horrible? Yikes. Uh, Okay, let's move on with this week's science or fiction. There is a theme this week. The theme is not snakes or venom. Kara, the theme is something that, as skeptics, we should know all about. Memory. Memory. Okay? Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Here we are, three items about human memory. Item number one, in a 2015 study, researchers were able to generate rich, false memories of subjects having committed a crime in 70% of cases with just suggestive interviews. Item number two, a recent study finds that subjects were no better than chance at identifying false memories from true memories in others. And item number three, Infantile or childhood amnesia, the inability of adults to remember events prior to about three years of age, has been linked to the relative underdevelopment of language. Jay, go first. All right. The first one about, uh, you know, it says 2015 researchers were able to generate false memories in subjects having committed a crime in 70% of cases. I mean, I think 70% sounds very high. I'm absolutely not doubting the fact that it was they were able to uh, implant or prime memories, but 70% sounds very high to me. The second one says, uh, this is one about the study that finds that subjects were no better than chance at identifying false memories from true memories and others. I would think that one is true. I mean, why would, uh, why would, why would that not be true? And the last one here about infantile or childhood amnesia, the inability of adults to remember events prior to about three years of age, it has been linked to the relative underdevelopment of language. Yeah, I mean, I remember us talking about how I thought it was more around four years old where you don't, you won't have memories. But I guess, you know, language would strongly help you remember things just because of the way your brain is processing. But at the same time, I bet you that they're two very different parts of the brain. That's interesting. Damn, I, I want to hear the details about that one. So that first one about being able to implant memories and they were saying that 70% of the time they were able to do, it, I think that might be too high. That's the fake. Okay, Bob? Yeah, a lot of these jive with 
studies that I've read, you know, over the years. Nothing new, but over the you know the past ten or twenty years, some of these make sense. So I'm gonna start with three: the childhood amnesia, um, having to do with uh, the uh, underdevelopment of language. That makes sense to me. You know, uh, it just makes sense that um, consolidation of me- to long-term memory would be hampered by uh, a very immature language skills kind of it just kind of makes sense you know not a, not 100% sense but i can kind of see that one uh the second one this one makes even more sense the one about um identifying false memories from true memories that just makes way too much sense to me um i mean i've read years ago about studies showing that even memories uh even a, a professional would have problems ident- you know teasing the difference between a false memory and a a, a true memory. The, the person doesn't know the difference. The therapist didn't really, couldn't really tell them, tell the difference. So the first one, that's one I have, I have trouble with here. So creating false memories about having committed a crime in the majority of the cases. Now I, I'm, I know that we, they've been able to, you know, create false memories. I mean, Steve, you do it on the stage in the extravaganza. Creating mm-hmm. a false memory is not that difficult. But to convince so many people that they actually committed a crime, I would think you would have something in your head that would be especially skeptical of, uh, you know, of a memory just just appears, you know, that is like, oh yeah, I committed a crime. And just from suggestive interviews, I mean, I think it would take a little bit more work um, to actually create that. So I'll say that's fiction. Okay, Evan. I'll agree with uh, Jay and Bob, basically. And I do think it comes down to the fact that it's having committed a crime. There's something about that. That's, uh, you know, that's not some, I, oh, I remember the color of the car driving by. No, this is a crime that supposedly you had done. That's, that's not just some light thing that a person processes in their brain. I think it's much more serious, therefore greater attention to that kind of detail. So that rich false memory of that and with just suggestive interviews seems seems kind of flimsy. The other two uh, seem practical. So I'll, I'll agree with the guys. And Kara? I think these are all science. I don't know. I don't know how to pick. I think that easily people can be persuaded to have false memories. We see it all the time time with um, unscrupulous or kind of we're learning more and more what the ethics of police interrogation need to be because so many people admit to stuff they didn't do. And then the childhood amnesia one seems like science too, because I mean, I don't think it's completely about language, but you wrote it in such a way that it says it's been linked to the relative underdevelopment of language. I mean, I think a lot of it actually has to do with memory and coding in baby. Like, I don't think they they have the, like their their um, memory systems, like I don't think are as developed. And also maybe just globally, they're not as pruned to be able to do, you know, make these have to be long-term memories. So I, don't, I just think their brains probably aren't as developed as they need to be to make these memories. But also, yeah, I think language is a huge helper in making memories. No better than chance is very specific. That saying the subjects did not do better than a coin flip. So maybe they did worse than chance or maybe they did way better than chance. So maybe I'll go with that one and say that's the fiction. It was the identifying false memories from true memories and others. Okay, so you all agree on number three. So we'll start there. Infantile or childhood amnesia, the inability of adults to remember events prior to about three years of age has been linked to the relative underdevelopment of language. You guys all think that is science. And this one is the fiction. Oh, bastard. Holy moly. So, yeah. It hasn't been yeah. linked at all? Really, oh it gosh. hasn't. You know, I've read so a lot bad. about this in prep. This, this, that one, the fiction, took me the most time to prep 
because you had to read, you know, around it quite a bit. And language wasn't even mentioned as a as a hypothesis. The debate is is between do the memories form in the first place and are they later purged or are they never formed? And it's it's linked to the hippocampus. So you were you were kind of right there, Kara, when you were talking about the 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 immature brain. So there's there's a few factors. So here are the here's the range of hypotheses. Again, none of them involve language, which is why I thought I was safe to to make that the fiction. One is that just the hippocampus is underdeveloped. It's not able to really consolidate memories into long-term memory. And so children up until the age of, you know, 3 to 4 are living in about a two-week window of memory. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're a li- like little goldfish. Yeah, though maybe a little bit longer, <laughs> you know. And then, then after age three to four, it, it increases. But even up to seven, it's still relatively shorter than adults, but it's much longer. That's why we have a paucity of memories from four to seven. We have memories from four to seven, just not as many, you know, like memories per period of time as adult as our adult part of our life. But like, up, you know, from up until age three, three and a half, most people have zero memories. They can't recall anything. Yeah, but there, but there was there's some consolidation going on. To well, that's memory. the question. That's the question. Yeah. Is it I just, it's- is it just an immature version of consolidation that doesn't last that long? Or is there something else going on? So the other hypothesis is that the brain is developing so quickly at that age that it just loses track of the memories. It's like like the hippocampus is basically tells uh, the brain where memories are. And if the hippocampus is growing and developing so quickly, it basically is changing so fast, it loses track of those memories until it sort of settles down and it's growing at a slower rate so that it could, it's like, you know, trying to refile and update its filing system and it can't do it up until age three and a half, four years old. The evidence to support that notion is that if you take mice who have the same exact phenomenon as humans, if you teach a young mouse to run a maze and two weeks later it forgets, if you give them drugs to slow down the development of their brain, their memory lasts longer. So there's this indirect evidence that it's linked to the rate of development, but there's also evidence that these memories are formed but when the brain de- the the late this is kind of related to what I'm saying that the the memories are essentially purged as part of the later development of the brain. So that's really it's like are the memories there but just we lost the address or the memories themselves <laughs> basically were they purged to make way for for new stuff. But of course, what happens to kids in the first three four years of their life affects their personality and other things you know what i mean it does have so there is some long-term memory going on but as you know there are different types of memory yeah yeah so it's just the sort of the autobiographical episodic memory being able to remember a day in your life right that's the kind of memory that gets lost prior to the age three three and a half or so number two a recent study finds that subjects were no better than chance at identifying false memories from true memories in others that is Science, of course. That actually was a follow-up study to the first one in 2015. They actually were using videos that were made during the 2015 study. And yeah, it was a coin flip. People will know better. Now, you ask, well, how could you tell if the people believe it? So sincerity is only one angle to it. So what people, people thought they could tell the difference, though. People thought they could. And they, and they, and the reasons that they cited, well, they they falsely believed, right, that 
true memories would be more rich in details and more coherent. And that wasn't true, that the, these false memories were just as rich in details. And sens like recalling sensations and what it smelled like and all this kind of things. They, so they, there was an equal richness to the false memories and the true memories. And that's what tripped people up. This, and this means, of course, that in 2015 study, researchers were able to generate rich false memories of subjects having committed a crime in 70% of cases with just suggestive interviews. A crime. That is, that is, mm -hmm. Yes, a crime. I found that very surprising as well. I've Obviously, been watching a lot of confession tapes. Yeah, lately. right. This is, this, is, <laughs> this is what it is. It's like, so they basically deliberately did everything wrong you're not supposed to do when interviewing a witness. And mm -hmm. they showed 70% of the time they were able to convince people that they had committed a crime earlier, like when they were a teenager. Like an actual crime, like uh, assault with a weapon. Jeez. That's wow, like an intense crime. Yeah, like how felony. though? What, yeah, but, but how, how does that work, Steve? The brain? Wow. So this was this was though so it was seventy percent after three interviews. Yeah, and that's about like when you think about police interrogations where they keep them sometimes yeah. for oh, like yeah, twenty they, hours. Yeah. and right. all of these all of these down. like documentaries about it always say the same thing. People wonder, or people always say, "I would never do that. I would never confess to a crime I didn't admit uh, that I didn't commit." I don't. So, so it's hard for juries to ever believe After seventeen hours, it. you might exactly, and that's the thing. Like, it you read this headline, and it's like, "There's no way," but eh, it's you can do it. Yeah, seventy percent. Yeah, seventy percent. They said seventy percent of participants were classified as having false memories of committing a crime after three mm. interviews. Amazing. And all they did was interview them. Yeah. Wow. Out of nothing. They created out of nothing just by the interview technique itself. Well, that was the whole recovered memory slash false mm -hmm. memory syndrome. Right. That's what it was. Yep. Completely oh, irresponsible therapists. Terrible. All right. Evan, give us a quote. Who are stakeholders in that heritage? That pretty much means every single person on Earth. Everyone has some attachment to the moon. And that was uh, spoken, written by Alice Gorman. She's a doctor, a pioneer in the field of space archaeology. Space archaeology. Space archaeology. That oh, is no, a thing. He's going to come up with a whole bunch of space archaeologist no. jokes. <laughs> no, no, no. Save those for next week. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's the research of, uh, obviously, human-made items found in space. And their interpretation as clues to the adventures humanity has experienced in space. It's really a fascinating uh, idea or notion. And it's uh, considered pioneering work. And, she, and Alice is the, uh, is the head of that. Um, she runs a blog. Uh, she's an archaeologist, obviously, by trade. But has, you know, turned her interest into uh, space as well uh, to that archaeology passion. So good for her. And she's reminding us here that... You know, the moon, again, doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't belong to any country. Nobody can lay claim to it. It belongs to the humanity and the universe, frankly. And we all need to appreciate that and enjoy it equally for all that it is to us on so many, on cult culturally and historically. And it's a very important part of everyone's life. I know it is to me. I, I, mm -hmm. I love my moon. <laughs> I would I would hate to live on a planet that doesn't at least have one moon. I feel very fortunate about that. Yeah, imagine if we had no moon. Well, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't really know. Boring. Would we? Might, might oh, we would know. Yeah, we you're right. Moon. <laughs> we might not <laughs> know we didn't have a moon. Yeah. 
So we but, but I could I could imagine I could imagine cool things that we don't have. Like imagine if if we had a planet like Saturn close enough in orbit to us that we could see it with the naked eye as like a oh, moon-sized gosh. object. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh yeah, that would be freaking Ooh. awesome. See it during, yeah, you're right. See it's it during the, the day. That could totally be the case. Totally. Yeah, we got to see those rings. Minus six magnitude. See something but cool the, during the day. That our moon is positioned in the place that we can have these uh, total solar eclipses. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's cool. So very special. Good to remember. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thanks, thank you, Steve. Steve. Uh, we'll be getting together in two days for our uh, live streaming event. Yeah. Yes. The we'll day before be the show comes yesterday. out, but there'll be one every Friday. So when, But when you're hearing this, next Friday we'll be doing another streaming event. So check our website for details. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. Dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.